0: Hi, this is Jay Baer of Convince and Convert Consulting, and welcome to the new Content Experience Show. Content Experience is the new content marketing. It's not only about reaching audiences where they are, but engaging them with personalized, useful content that matters. On the Content Experience Show, we share strategies, tips, and real-world examples of how leaders are taking their content marketing to the next level. Now, here's your hosts, Randy Frisch from Uberflip and Anna Harak from Convince and Convert Consulting.
1: Welcome to the content experience podcast, Anna. We've got a good one today. We've got a good friend of mine named April Dunford and it's a secret friend. She's someone who I just admire professionally early days of booger flip. I was, you know, clawing at any moment I get could get with her over a coffee or beer or whatever it was. Cause she is a positioning guru, you know? And, and I think what she calls out in this podcast is that a lot of us think we've nailed positioning, but it's, it's almost, so many different people in our own companies have their own definition of our own positioning I, I don't know about you but i i think that's that's something i hear in so many different companies it's something they challenge with right you know sales defines it one way marketing defines it another success teams or support teams, you know, go a whole other direction. And, and that's hard. I mean, how often do you run into that with some of the customers you talk?
2: To? Oh, all the time. I mean, customers like, you know, some of the even clients that I used to do brand positioning for way back in the day, um, and brand strategy for, you know, you would ask different people like, okay, well, what does, you know, X company mean to you? What is it to you? And you would get 30 different answers. You know, and, and sometimes they were like kind of close, like loosely uh, connected. And then other times they were completely separate, like you would think they were working for 20 different companies. So, April has some amazing insight, genuinely wonderful uh, podcast today, just about how to get people onto the same page, what that actually looks like, how to actually look at positioning from the right way. And she gives phenomenal examples too. This is just like an A podcast today.
1: Absolutely. No, I, I had a good vibe about it. I actually it was funny, I, I off air I accidentally insulted her because uh I called out in the podcast someone that uh we're working with and, and it may sound like it's a competitor verse, it's not. So I'll clear that up. But I, I think the real reason to listen to this entire podcast is is the following whether you're an early stage startup or whether you're late stage we hit on both examples here and and that's what's kind of cool to me because i always like to think any company can view itself as a startup so if you're mm-hmm. trying to launch you know a new disruptive offering great advice on how to do so. If you're also a large organization trying to protect yourself from these disruptors, some real actionable examples from how April's done that at companies like IBM over the years. So this is one filled with insight for pretty much everyone.
2: Yeah. And Randy, you kicked it off. No, actually I kicked it off. So I
1: I will say roll
2: (laughs) it, right? Yeah. All right. Let's hear what April had to say. April. Welcome to the Content Experience Show podcast. It's so great to have you here.
3: Hey, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, I know that you and Randy know each other, um, and you and I started to get to know each other a little bit off air, but would you mind going ahead and just telling everybody a little bit about yourself?
3: Sure. So my background is um, I've been a repeat VP marketing at a series of seven startups. Six of those startups got acquired um, and more recently, I've transitioned into doing consulting and very specifically, I work with tech companies on positioning. I love it. So
2: you are touching back into my history. I started off as um, a you know a brand strategist and a traditional copywriter. And one of the things that I love, I'm just going to go ahead and get right into it because one of the, my favorite things on your website is that you say that people won't buy what they don't understand. And I feel like it is just so unbelievably relevant, especially with how fast we're putting out information, how fast we're creating products. How, I mean, how is that perceived? And do people really, do the people that you work with and the people you talk to understand just how much that means and that maybe they're not clear when
3: they think they are? Well, you know, it comes back to one of these things where, you know, there's the way we think about our stuff in the inside of the company Mm -hmm. and the way people see it on the outside of the company. So when you're working on a product, it's very easy to get extremely close to that product and extremely heads down and just completely lose sight of the perspective of the poor prospect on the other side of this thing coming at it for the first time. They've never seen it before going, what in the heck is this thing? And meanwhile, you're 10 miles ahead of them going, here's another feature, and here's another feature, <laughs> another feature. And meanwhile, the poor prospect is like, no, 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 back up. It's a what? <laughs> what right. exactly is it? And so it, it is one of these things that I think until we start feeling the symptoms of that in our pipeline it's very easy to think oh this is obvious everybody knows what this is we know what it is. we know what it is like we you know, we've been working on this for 10 years of course this is what it is and then things change the market shifts attitudes and prospects shifts that you know new entrants come in and out of our market and something that was once clear can often very easily become very muddy and we don't recognize it until we start seeing this weakness in the pipeline somewhere where we're like hey you know it seems like it takes us four calls before the light goes on and people say oh yeah you're that (laughs) strong positioning is what we do when we see that happening um, and it's weak positioning that gets us into that problem in the first place.
2: It's so funny because I feel like this has been just such a common theme. I mean, Randy, you and I have talked about this where, um, you know, as marketers, we forget what it was ever like to be a consumer. Like all of a sudden that light just switches off in our brain and we're like feature, 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 like it washes your dog, it waxes your car. And people are like, but wait, what even is it to begin with? And um, I feel like there's so many parallels to content here as well, because a lot of times, you know, marketing this, you know, marketing products and, and bringing that positioning to life to to the public requires a ton of content and creating that experience. And it's like that even breaks down too, because we just speak to ourselves.
3: Oh, totally, totally. This is it. Like the, the, the interesting thing about positioning is if we assume inside the company that the positioning is clear and it's obvious, we often just don't set it. So we we fall back on this kind of default positioning. Yeah, you know, we're, we're email. Of course we're email. What else could we be? Of course we're email. Meanwhile, your customer's over there on the other side going, reading your white paper, going, you're talking about a lot of stuff and this seems like chat. Like, I don't know. It seems like chat. <laughs> or maybe it seemed collaboration. I don't know. They said file sharing in there. Is that email? I don't know. And meanwhile, you're way past it. Like, you've never set the boundaries of this is what it is. These, these are the kind of solutions you could be comparing this to, and then this is why we're better. We tend to just jump to the this is why we're better and forget about the level setting that happens in the first place.
1: So I want to jump in there and you know kind of bridge what Anna said. I, I think the challenges is, is, with a lot of this is who is ultimately responsible for positioning, right? Because the content team says, okay, great, we fully understand who we're going to write for, right? Like we understand our buyer, Somehow they know better than anyone. Um, hopefully they did research, but probably it's got. Uh, and then you probably also have the product marketing team who's sitting there saying, well, I know who we have to position for. And then, but of course, and you can sense my sarcasm, you know, the sales right. team knows better than anyone <laughs> who were, and, and to be honest though, sometimes they may be right because they're actually speaking to those people. Right, yeah. So, you know, without... Without uh, you know, kind of buying into what I'm saying and saying, yeah, you're right, it's everyone. Who should own positioning in the organization?
3: Well, so here's the thing. So if we think about the definition of positioning, so what positioning is, so what positioning is, is it defines how your offering can, is the best in the world at delivering something that a well-defined group of customers cares a lot about. So it's the best in the world at delivering something a well-defined group of customers cares a lot about. If I'm going to shift anything in that, meaning if I think about the component pieces of positioning, it's who's my competitive alternatives, what are my unique uh, capabilities, what's my value, who's my target customer, and then what market is it that I'm intending to win? a shift in any of those is way bigger than a shift in marketing that is literally a shift in business strategy if i say you know what we used to go after mid market but now we've decided the best customers for us to go after are enterprise <laughs> who makes that decision the,
1: uh, like, it's true. A, lot, a lot of the thing that's the right. a lot of the times in organizations it's the executive team it's As the executive crew, would you so agree so here's
3: the thing like marketing on their own cannot shift positioning. Now, often marketing will be on the front lines of feeling the pain of weak positioning. So they'll know when the positioning is not working. Same with sales. You'll often get sales coming in and going, this just doesn't sell. This is no good. I'm trying to sell this thing, value propositions, all this stuff. It doesn't actually work. But if you want to shift it and make it stick, you're going to actually have to have all the heads of all the teams get together and agree on what it is because it is literally a shift in business strategy. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? We used to be email, but now we're chat. Okay. We're good. (laughs) Sales can't do that. Marketing can't do that. Even the CEO can't do that on his or her own without making sure the sales team buys in because the sales team will just sell it however they want. Like,
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're so you're so right. It's it's funny. I mean, at Uberflip ourselves, and yeah, you know, April, I've called you on this from time to time, you know, just for advice. You know, we've struggled with positioning how our platform can be used. And I won't go into detail with our conundrum, but you know, not just by the content marketer, but the entire org mm. uh, and all the other different departments. And as much as as you said, you know, we kind of got to a point where myself and my co-founder, we thought we had better articulated it, we just didn't get buy-in and we didn't educate right. that through you know a much larger team that we are today. So we I mean, we're actually going through an exercise right now and you know I'll throw another you know person who does consulting because I know you're so busy you don't need new customers. I don't have to just plug you. Uh, but do you know Kia Poom? No. Do you know Kia? Oh she's great. So she does it more from the customer angle. Like what is you know what do you have to do To think about that customer journey from beginning to end. So, you know, back to, I I couldn't agree with you more that everyone has to buy in, but I guess the question is who should drive this, right? Should this be driven from marketing? Should this be driven from your customer org? Should this be driven by the sales org? Or how do you get all those people together productively Mm -hmm. to have these meaningful positioning shifts?
3: Well, think about it this way like, one way to think about positioning is positioning is kind of like the input to everything we're doing in marketing and sales. And to a certain extent, to product, to a certain extent, other parts of the organization too, but particularly in marketing and sales. So if I've got um, a marketing team and they want to go build a campaign, their inputs to that campaign are What does our best fit customer look like? What's our value proposition? How are we different and better? Who's our competitor? All these things. These are defined by your positioning. So I need to get the executive team in alignment around those basic things so that they can be used by marketing and sales as input into the other stuff so then they can just go off and you don't have to you know, be in charge of all of that stuff. They can go and be in charge of their own work but you need to define the inputs. Now the trick on the inputs is yes, there's buyer journey, uh, yes, there's a lot of different things you can do to collect customer information but at the same time, in order to define these inputs, you are going to have to define them around what a best fit customer is. So in my methodology, what we, where we start with is you have good fit customers and you have not so good fit customers. And if I go to the good fit customers and I ask them, look, if Uberflip didn't exist anymore, like the servers got blown up and Randy was in there and it's gone all of it. (laughs) Disaster. Disaster. We're shutting it down. Sorry, investors. (laughs) And then you were to say, look, okay, it doesn't exist. So now you got to go do something else. What would you do? And that idea sets what your competitive comparable is. That is the thing that your best customers are comparing you to every single day. That's the thing you got to build. It's the thing you got to beat. I mean, so There's usually not just one, but there's also not a hundred of these things, right? So I start with that and I say, okay, I have competitive comparables. For my best customers, it looks like this. Because my positioning, what I'm trying to position for are for my best folks, not for everybody. I'm trying to position for my best folks. So I start with that. And then I say, okay, compared to this, what have I got that they don't have? which is step two, right? So I say, well, these guys have that they don't have. A lot of companies get that first step wrong. So what they're doing is they're starting with value proposition or they're starting at some other place on on the journey, which is fine, and you'll get to something. It just might not be differentiated against the thing you actually need to differentiate against. So I work a lot with startups and a lot of startups will tell me, hey, our big thing is ease of use. That's what everyone loves us for. We did a survey and we asked them and they said, oh, we just love how you're so easy to use and and look at all our other competitors, these nine other little startups in Silicon Valley. And it takes 10 clicks to do this thing that we do in two clicks. And that's what we are. We're all about ease of use. But then you go and you talk to the customer and you say, oh, terrible disaster has happened. Everything's blown up. You got to do something else. What would you do? And the customer looks at you and says, "Uh, I don't know, hire an intern, maybe use a bridge, <laughs> right? And so you, you know what's super easy to use, way easier to use in your thing? A spreadsheet or an intern, like an intern. It's like, Joey, get me a coffee while you're out there. Put all that data in that thing and do that thing and then like, come back in a couple of days when you're done that. Super easy to use. So is ease of use your differentiator if that's what they're comparing you to? No, and it might be what they say on the survey when you ask them.
1: <laughs> I love that, April. So we're, we're kind of ripping all the companies that, that don't do it as well as we could. Uh, we want to get some great examples from you and, you, and you've got a lot of those in your book, Obviously Awesome, which are obviously awesome examples in an obviously awesome book, uh, but we're going to take a quick break here on the podcast, and then April's going to deliver you some companies that are really lining up positioning well or repositioning to understand how to overcome that that fear of what they may be. We'll be right back here on the Connex podcast.
0: Hi friends, this is Jay Baer from Convince and Convert, reminding you that this show, the Connect Show podcast is brought to you by Uberflip, the number one content experience platform. Do you ever wonder how content experience affects your marketing results? Well, you can find out in the first ever content experience report, where Uberflip uncovers eight data science-backed insights to boost your content engagement and your conversions. It's a killer report and you do not want to miss it. Get your free copy right now. At uberflip.com slash conex show report. That's uberflip.com slash conex show report report. And the show is also brought to you by our team at Convince and Convert Consulting. If you've got a terrific content marketing program, but you want to take it to the very next level, we can help Convince and Convert works with the world's most iconic brands to increase the effectiveness of their content marketing, social media marketing, digital marketing, and word of mouth marketing. Find us at convinceandconvert.com.
2: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Content Experience Show podcast. We are here with April again. And as Randy had previewed right before the break, we are going to talk about some real life examples. Now, April, before we jump into that, one of the things that I think is kind of hilarious and also kind of frustrating, whenever I run workshops or in the past, whenever I had done brand strategy, you know, we'd start to talk about aspirational, you know, companies, or, you know, we'd hear about people talking about sort of who they modeled themselves after. And everybody always looks to like the biggest, most aspirational companies ever, like Apple and Coca-Cola. And they start with that sort of framework of how do we get from being a complete startup all the way up to Apple in like a year. So what are some actual real life examples of people who have done Positioning correctly, and they've actually taken a step back and made it real, or maybe they've repositioned themselves in a great way something that people can actually look more to a real life example for, say.
3: Sure. So, like, I get questions like this a lot. I think that we like to talk about those famous, well known examples. Because we can all relate to them. We all have Apple products and we all like to talk about how cool Apple is. And you go and they to do it so well. Oh yeah, they do it so well. And then you go to conferences and a lot of the speakers use these same very big brands over and over again as examples. But the reality is, is positioning when you are in an existing market category and you are the leader of that market category is a completely different game. Then positioning when you're a small company and you're trying to challenge that market leader or you're at least trying to just get a foothold in a market that is you know completely dominated by this big competitor that everybody knows so in my book I talk about different styles of positioning and you know the one where you're going in and challenging an existing leader an existing market is called head-to-head and it almost never works and it, Even big companies don't attempt to enter a new market in that way, whereas most smaller companies, and the companies you know now were small at one point, they didn't start that way. They started by dominating a sub-segment or a little niche in a a market and then gradually grew and took over bigger and bigger slices or a bigger and bigger subcategory until they got big enough to challenge the leader there. Um, the other thing that's important is that if the category exists, then there's a set of assumptions around that category that customers have. So if you say, you know, I'm in this particular market, customers will assume that you do all the things that the leader does in that market. And you're a little startup, you don't. (laughs) So, um, I'll give you an example. So the, uh, there's a company here in Canada and they were founded by two guys that uh, have advanced degrees in mechatronics engineering and they're kind of robot guys. So when they finished school, they decided they were going to do a company and they were going to make robots because that's their passion. And so they started out making robots for different uses, but at one point they um, made a robot and it's specifically designed for use inside a manufacturing plant. And what it does is it, take stuff from one part of the manufacturing plant to another, which it turns out that's actually a super difficult problem to solve. It involves mapping, sensors, a team of folks doing artificial intelligence. Um, So this thing is a pretty advanced piece of technology. So they go out to sell it. They're pretty good at generating leads and they're good at getting meetings. But when they get into the meeting, they're like, hey, uh, we got this fancy new robot. And the reaction for robot buyers at a manufacturing plant was kind of like, ugh. Robots. Robots. We got robots. We could be buying robots for decades, man. We got all kinds of robots. Not only that, we got robot vendors. They probably do what you guys do. And we know what robots cost. And you guys seem like you're kind of expensive. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're not a robot like that. We're not. We're like no robot you've ever seen before before we're like special special robots we drive around and we have artificial intelligence whatever and what the buyer is thinking is no they're thinking of like a robot that sits in one place that picks up a plastic bucket and puts it in a box over and over and over again this is nothing like what these guys do and so they get the sale, but it would take them like four meetings to convince them like, no, this is not like, this is not. no, we're not one of those. No, no, it's not like what those guys sell. No, 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 this is different. And eventually they decided, you know what? Maybe this positioning ourselves as a robot isn't doing us any favors. And so they took a step back and they looked at, What are we really, really good at? What is our secret sauce? And all the stuff they're good at, let's list it, right? The thing drives around. It's full of artificial intelligence and mapping and sensors. And then they said, well, what is that? Like, How would we position that in a context where all that stuff is obvious? And the realization they came through is maybe the thing we built is actually a self-driving car. And so they repositioned the thing from a robot to... An autonomous vehicle for industrial uses. But you position that thing as a self-driving car, and it's like, of course it drives around. Of course it's full of mapping and sensors. Of course it costs more money than a thing that picks up a plastic bucket and puts it in a box. Of course, our existing robot vendors don't do this. This is a totally different thing. And so that shift in positioning made all of the stuff they do that's really different and really awesome obvious just by shifting the context around it, which is what good positioning does.
1: I, lo- I love that example, April. And uh, you know, the beauty is the way you speak to it is so obvious, even as people are listening, which is where a podcast works. The only thing that's even better when you, when people see you present this. Is is some of the visuals you have that show how the entire company bought into this which I think comes back to that first part You told us around the entire executive team buying into positioning and and some of the visuals If I recall that you have is that they changed this these these robots or these self-driving cars to actually have headlights and taillights that really did nothing but just made it feel more like
3: the positioning. So it's really interesting. If you think about this from a marketing perspective, how they executed on that positioning is just genius. So first of all, they switched their website from looking very much like robotics and robot stuff to like, it literally looked like the Toyota website. I mean, it's like, it looks like a car website. It's all cool. Uh, the, 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 Photography looks like car photography. Um, they, like you mentioned, they changed the graphic design of the robot itself. Even the way they named things, like they had a feature for managing multiple of these robots together um, that I forget what it was called before. But they changed the name of that feature to fleet management because that's what you would call it if you're managing a fleet of cars. And so, you know, even their terminology, they they renamed the division to auto Manufacturing or automotors, because it, before they were called Clearpath Robotics, and so they had "robot" right in the company name, and so they changed the name as well. So, I mean, this this change actually permeated everything, right? Industrial design, plus marketing, plus the pricing, plus the way they um, the the way they named the features. So, things you would consider product things were changed. So, yeah, it really does touch everything. I also love
2: that we now live in a time where robots are a commodity.
3: Like that, I think, is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, manufacturing they are. But like, that drives yeah. home the, the, the thing, too, that you really got to think about your buyers, right? Yeah. They're not a commodity for everybody. No, But in manufacturing, they are. And in manufacturing, there's a person whose job it is to buy robot stuff. (laughs) Yeah, no, I
2: think it's crazy and awesome. And I love how they transformed it into something that is even like, like I keep getting this vision of like the old school, like 40s, 50s, 60s Disney cartoons about like what the future used to look like. And I'm like, oh, we live in that time of that's like really coming true. No, I think it's awesome. I love that example.
1: Hmm. So we, we've got just a bit more time and and you know a lot of this focus and a lot of your focus is on startups, but but April, you've also worked in very large organizations where as you described it earlier, the contrast to like an Apple, and not that you yeah. worked at Apple, but you know, being that leader, what are some of the things that larger organizations can entertain when it comes to a positioning shift? Um, you know, tactics, strategies that 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 are still that, that aren't going to take a decade to change, right? Because right. I think that's the fear of a lot of people listening to this podcast. We have a mix of of you know startups probably, but we also have some large companies who are listening to this saying, "Well, you know, we can't completely change what we are overnight." How are how do you go about reinventing yourself, if you will?
3: Yeah. So, you know, so I did a couple of tours of duty at IBM and a couple other big companies out in the valley. Um, And it's interesting. It's cool what we could get away with that you could never get away with if you weren't huge and the leader in your market. So one thing that we could do very adeptly at IBM that I couldn't do in other places was I could take an existing market and stretch the boundaries of it almost anywhere, if I owned the market. So I could say, you know what, I completely dominate the market for information integration. So at one point, you know, I we when I worked at IBM, we actually created a new market. We launched a bunch of products inside that market. We completely dominated the thing in like a year. And then and then we, anytime we decided to push the boundaries on it and say, oh yeah, that's information integration too. Everybody would just go, great, okay, now it is, (laughs) which I could never do at a startup. And so we were very paranoid about fast-moving, well-funded startups creeping along the edges of our market and trying to define that as something different, or a different market, and our defensive strategy on that would be to just come in and say, "Nope, that's part of our market too." Sorry, little startups. <laughs> you know, or, or, or buy them.: in it, was... the magic quadrant for that. Whoops. <laughs> and so we could just defend against that by essentially redrawing the boundaries of our market. So we were always very conscious of our flanks. You know We had to defend the base like the the actual absolute core of the market. But around the edges, we were always looking for fast moving, innovative startups, how they might be able to beat us. And then we had strategies for that. So we'd be like, well, you know, these guys are trying to define this corner of the space as something different, like in the information integration guide part. We had a couple of big ish companies, like you know, in startups we'd call them big. They were publicly traded over a hundred million revenue, but we we're billions of revenue, right? So we think that's small. So we'd see them saying, oh ETL Extract Transform load, which is what used to be a big market on its own until we decided it was part of the information integration market. Sometimes oh, those vendors would say, "Well, oh, ETL is really separate. It's not information integration at all. And then we would just crunch that. So we would be in all of our marketing and everything we talk about, ETL was like right in the middle of information integration. And then we'd talk about why it was it's super important to have ETL as part of this bigger thing. And if you were thinking about it separately, you were just plain doing it wrong. And then we'd kill you with a thousand customer examples where they're using ETL plus five other things. And you'd just be a moron to be doing ETL without the five other things, which by the way, only we can do. Ooh, ouch, poor little startups. And we did that until the ETL folks were like, Begging for mercy, and then and then their stock prices went way down because we were crushing them. And then we bought one of them real cheap and just brought it in. <laughs> we're like, see, it's all part of the big thing. It's fantastic. Um, so we could do that in a way. The other thing that you have access to at a bigger company in a way that you don't when you're a startup is depending on what you're selling. But if you're selling enterprise software, you have access to. Um, Industry influencers in a way that a startup can afford and can't afford to do well. So, for example, if you're in a space where Gartner is relevant and influential with your buyers, there's so much you can do in analyst relations to get Gartner to deeply understand your stuff. Like, I mean, you can kill them with information. You can bring them in. You'd be briefing them super regularly. You can give them super sneak peeks into things. Like if you saw the way analyst relations works at a very, very big company, it is very difficult for a startup to be able to give those folks the attention that a big company can. And the more they know about you, the more they write about you, the more they understand your value, the, the higher they rank you. And so we did great things when I was at IBM in industry relations because we had a giant team dedicated to doing just that. And, and we loved those guys so hard <laughs> until they had to kind of love us back. <laughs> and, and then I really noticed that when I left IBM the first time I went to a smaller company, it was like, oh, we're gonna do all this great stuff with Gartner Group. And then it was like, yeah, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> we just we don't have the budget, we don't have the people, we don't have the time. And yeah, they're influential, but you know, I got all this nine thousand other things to do, so I can't do that either. Um, the same thing with if you're publicly traded, right? You have um you have the stock analysts and the people that look at the market and the people that look at the stock exchange and stuff. And again, that's not when you're privately privately held company, you don't have access to any of that stuff. So big global companies can do a bunch of things that the startups can't touch in the same way that the vice versa is if I'm a startup, I can move 10,000 times faster at a laundry list of things. Like I can create content like a maniac and get it out in a week. Whereas I can't even get an idea to maybe make something approved in a week. <laughs> at IBM. Like, nice. I love it. Oh, like I couldn't, I like, it would take me two weeks to get it through like the branding police. <laughs> At the end, after the content was done, i going to give me two weeks to get it out. Nice There's things on both sides. There's things you can do and things you can't. Um, you just have to work your strengths.
2: Well, I love how regardless of what side of the table you're on or anybody listening is on, you've basically given them the framework for like world domination with positioning. So now it's just up to everybody um, to go get the book um, and check April out. So April, where can people follow you, find you, and uh, the name of your book so that everybody can pick it up?
3: Oh, the book is called Obviously Awesome, and uh, and it's available on Amazon and other online book places. Uh, my website's aprildunford.com, and you can learn more about my stuff there. And I probably the social network I'm the most active on is Twitter, so you can follow me at aprildunford on Twitter. And then you know what? You can see me at this great conference that's coming up is called Connex. Maybe you've heard of it.
2: (laughs) A little bit. It sounds a little familiar. Um, Yeah, I think we've heard of that one. So everybody go follow April. See her in person at Connex. uh, Pick up the book. um, Just go do all of the things after listening to this. April, thank you so much for being here. It was really fantastic having you on. You gave so much amazing insight and tips and tricks to our listeners but what we want to have you do is stick around for just a few more minutes because randy has some fun questions teed up for you now that we got to know the professional side of you we're going to get to know the personal side so everybody stick around we have just a bit more from april after this hey everyone i wanted to take just a few seconds today to talk to you about emma emma is an email marketing platform that helps you connect with your audience and grow lasting relationships. They're awesome. They offer really intuitive tools to build and automate emails with powerful segmentation and reporting too. And the big difference is they're focused on you. Between their award-winning support and their pro services team, they make sure every customer has success with their email marketing. Seriously, they are amazing. You can learn more and request a demo today at myemma.com slash j is awesome again that's myemma.com slash j is awesome
1: all right april uh we have a few more minutes here <laughs> with you this is
2: the scary you. part of the podcast no this yeah. is the
1: fun part i mean this is the stuff that i usually get to learn about you because we're stuck in an airport lounge or grabbing a drink <laughs> you know right. you know talking about Not content every time and-
3: i've flown out of la that stupid terminal. My flight's three hours delayed. Like, like, and I've been to New York like fifteen times this year, yeah. and every single time I'm sitting in that lounge, going. What at
1: least, it, at least they redid that airport,
3: though. Yeah, so it's the
1: not, It's is not beautiful. as it used to be. A really bad experience. No offense to New Yorkers. I mean that I that old LaGuardia There's a airport
3: in there too. This is pretty good, but yeah, it's just
1: true. I, I haven't hit the taco place yet, but that that would be my go-to.
3: No, it's always too busy. I see it down there, but it's too busy. But yeah, yeah. All right. So we've got just a couple of minutes. We talked
1: all about, you know, positioning companies. Um, if you were to position yourself, and it's it's interesting, if you go back to the first question that Anna asked you, she said, tell us a little bit about yourself. And you instantly yeah. start to talk about your professional life, right? Yeah. So, I, And, and I, I think we all do that. I see people do that in interviews that I conduct all the time for, you know, when we're hiring someone. If, if someone were to get to know you and you had to create a podcast for it, Right, mm-hmm. um, that would you know dig into one of your biggest personal interests when you're not talking about positioning. What would that podcast be about? And you know, any guests that you'd be excited about that you just get to interview and you know get to know and you know pursue one of your own personal passions.
3: A guest?
1: Yeah. So, w- like, if you were doing a podcast on something that was just a general interest, what would that podcast be about?
3: Well, you know. I like it's it's a it's a tricky question to ask mothers of children okay. because That's mothers of children don't actually get a lot of time to just fuck around with stuff. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it's so, so true, true right? And so it's like, oh, I remember when I used to have time and I had hobbies that weren't kids.
1: <laughs> right. Like it, your your hobbies are. You know, how do I drive from A to B more efficiently? Honestly,
3: it's like, you know, I got to drop this kid. I got to do this thing or whatever. But yeah, so I and I, my kids are just getting old enough that I feel like I'm getting, you know, reconnected to my, you know, not just working kids self, which but it's, but it's not, but it's not nearly to the level of, like, if you ask me that question before I had kids, oh my God, I go on and on all the shit I used to do. And like, basically mm-hmm. all that stuff is off my, like, that's why I, like, like all of it is off my list, except for. Like, I'm a very happy gal. If I get a good run in in the morning, I'm like, oh, yeah, today was a good day.
1: I, honestly, I thought you were going to go
3: with the running after, you know, some of our Yeah, but I mean, it's, it, it must be the best thing because it's the last thing to come off. <laughs> 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 it's the last thing standing of all the other things that I dropped. right? I used to play golf. I used to, like, I used to go out. I used to travel a lot more. I used to eat a lot in restaurants. I used to go out. I used to have all sorts of things. All that shit is gone since I had kids. It's like, you know, it's been 10 years since I did any of that stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, Now, now your personal one would be, you know, the, the, the people who own these lounges at all the airports and understanding how they create, how they create a competitive advantage. Uh, (laughs) It's just awful.
3: Although I will say, I just, I mentioned earlier that I just moved back into my house. And so I've been in the middle of this giant house renovation for like a year and that's taken up a lot of cycles. And um, I got sort of deep into like smart home stuff. And oh, nice. so there's a lot of, I got a lot of interesting stuff going on in my house. My house is all wired cat six ethernet.
1: Oh, Oh, no. oh wow. You're, like, you're ready oh. to go. <laughs>
3: And then the other thing I do is I put a gym in my house and I'm super excited about that.
1: Nice. Did you, did you go with the Peloton
3: bike? I want, so I'm a runner, right? So I want the treadmill, Yeah, but they don't sell it in Canada yet. So I'm literally like hassling the Peloton people, but there's a spot for that treadmill, man. It's like, I literally refer to the gym as the Peloton room. I'm just waiting for the treadmill to show up. But if it doesn't show up before the snow flies, then I got to replace it with some other treadmill. But then I'll just sell that treadmill and get a Peloton. (laughs) It does ship in Canada. But for some reason, they're not shipping the treadmill in Canada. It's bike only, but I'm not a biker. Well, there you go. We we tried to Talk find out via
1: your podcast, but we learned so much about you just by just by getting you to go here at the end, which is which is the whole idea of this podcast is you know explore a little bit, get to know our guests, uh, get to know the way what gets them to tick. And you know, I really think this is a great episode for everyone who's tuned in today. You know, really whether you're coming from a, a large organization or a, a startup trying to break through, a lot of real actionable ways to take a new look at your positioning and a new look at uniting everyone from the executive team through your organization to make sure that you have the right uh, right offering to the right people at the right time so that they buy what you've all ultimately got. April, thanks so much. Again, the book is called Obviously Awesome. This has been the Connex Podcast. On behalf of Anna at CNC, I'm Randy at Uberflip and this has been another episode of the Connex Podcast.
0: This is Jay Bear, and thanks for listening to the Content Experience Show. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentexperienceshow.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. That's contentexperienceshow.com. The Content Experience Show is sponsored by Convince & Convert Consulting and by Uberflip. It's produced by my team and I at Convince & Convert. If you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor on the show, just go to convinceandconvert.com.